I'd invite you this morning uh, to take a Bible and to turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Today, the 25th chapter, Leviticus chapter 25. And if you're with us and able this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word as we look at Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 23. Count off seven weeks of years, that is seven times seven, so that seven weeks of years totals 49 years. Then have the trumpet blown on the 10th day of the seventh month. Have the trumpet blown throughout your land on the day of reconciliation. You will make the 50th year holy, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It will be a jubilee year for you. Each of you must return to your family property and to your extended family. The 50th year will be a jubilee year for you. Do not plant, do not harvest the secondary growth, and do not gather from the freely growing vines because it's a jubilee. It will be holy to you. You can eat only the produce directly out of the field. Each of you must return to your family property in this year of jubilee. When you sell something to or buy something from your fellow citizens, you must not cheat each other. You will buy from your fellow citizen according to the number of years since the jubilee. He will sell you, sell to you according to the number of years left for harvest. You will raise the price if there are more years or lower the price if there are less years because it is the number of harvests that are being sold to you. You must not cheat each other but fear your God because I am the Lord your God. You will observe my rules and you will keep my regulations and do them so that you can live securely in the land. The land will give its fruit so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Suppose you ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or gather our crops then? I will send my blessing on you in the sixth year so it will make enough produce for three years. You can plant again in the eighth year and eat food from the previous year's produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes, you will eat the food from the previous year And you should underline this verse. The land must not be permanently sold because the land is mine. You are just immigrants and foreign guests of mine. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, if you're a guest with us today and some of you are here for homecoming, welcome back. It's so great to have you here this morning. Um, Back at the beginning of October, we've started this journey we're calling The Story That Changes Everything, and, and some folks are joining me in a kind of podcast I'm doing, reading about three chapters a day. And, and today, actually, this week, we transitioned from Leviticus into Numbers, and I thought about preaching the, today, I think we're in uh, Numbers chapters 10 through 12, and I thought about preaching those texts because Numbers 10 through 12 is about uh, complaining and criticizing your religious leaders. And if you complain too much, uh, God's going to send you more food than you need, and it's going to come out your nostrils and kill a few of you too. (laughs) And in chapter 12, even Moses' sister starts complaining about him, and she gets leprosy. So there you go. (laughs) The word of God for the people of God. No, so so, anyway... um, but we will, I'll preach, or we'll preach on numbers next week, but I want to talk, I want to go back to Leviticus 25, to this amazing text. Uh, one of the things that those of you who are going with us that we are discovering is that it's so interesting to, way, to see the way that there is a progressive revelation of an understanding who God is. And, 
And for those of us who are Christian, we see that, especially the fullest revelation in Christ Jesus. But there's so much about what we see, even in the life of Christ, in these strange texts, in places like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, and, and that shouldn't surprise us, because in the same way that the people of God are beginning to experience God and learning more and more about what God, not only who God is, but what God expects from them, that's true for us too. I was thinking about when Caleb was little, I think I've told some of you the story that um, he accepted Jesus in his heart and we were out in the front yard one day playing catch and, and he was doing really well. And I, there for just a moment, I thought I have a major leaguer on my hands here, right? Like I were throwing the ball and then I'm throwing a little harder and then I just threw it just a little too hard and he missed it and hit him right here. And he goes, oh dad, you've injured Jesus. Um, <laughs> Because Jesus, you know, he valued Jesus in his heart. Now, the funny part to me is about three years later, we're in the minivan, and Noah, who has now accepted Jesus in his heart, is talking about this. Oh, how happy he is that he has Jesus in his heart. And Caleb looks at him and goes, Noah, Jesus doesn't really live in your heart. It's the infilling of the Holy Spirit, okay? Right. <laughs> and now, you know, Caleb is ordained and teaches Bible every day. And if you ask him what it means to have Jesus in your heart, you're sit down because you're going to get a PowerPoint presentation, right? Like, like we have this developing understanding and, and we see that also then, then in the way the scripture begins to deeply understand who God is and what God re requires of us. Leviticus 25 is one of those texts though where it feels like the people of God are beginning to understand something really deep about the nature and character of God and how that should shape their life. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the year of Jubilee, but in order to do that, we've done a little bit of this in the past, but there are some economic codes that are really central to Israel's life. And there are a lot of them in the Torah or in the law, but there are, I think, four that are really primary. And so let me talk to you about them really quickly. The first is a law called tithing. Um, it's this law that says we should take a, a tenth of everything we grow and raise, and on a very regular basis, we should take that then to the tabernacle or later to the temple, and as, a, as an offering back to God, a, a discipline that recognizes everything we have from God is from God. And if God wants it all, he can have it all. But perhaps we should have this discipline that regularly reminds us of that, and so we're going to take a tenth, and we're going to take that to the tabernacle, we're going to take that to the temple, that also allows the priests and also the tribe of Levites who don't own land for their life to exist, but it also cares for the poor, the widow, the orphan. It allows the temple and the ta tabernacle to thrive. That's one. The second is, and it may be my favorite of these, and, is, and it occurs three times I counted in Leviticus, the law of gleaning where God says to them, listen, as you harvest, don't harvest to the edges. Leave the edges of your field unharvested. Leave the, cut the corners really wide. If you drop stuff, leave it there. And it's a law that says, because there are people in our world who used to be who we are, God says to the Israelites, you once were aliens and strangers in the land, constantly fearful that people were going to take advantage of you and you needed somebody to care for you. So that's who you are going to be. So when there is an alien, a sojourner, a stranger, an immigrant in your midst, you have left the edges of your life ready for them to receive what they need. It's a beautiful law. The third is the law of Sabbath. And we see it a little bit here in Leviticus 25. Every seven days, we're going to take a day off and we are going to worship, but we're going to let the land rest. We're going to let animals rest. We're going to rest. We're going to celebrate life together. But that gets extended not just to a day, but to a whole year. 
I love if you noticed in the text, God says, and here's what's going to happen. Now, if you're thinking about this, you're going to have to have enough to make it through the seventh year without harvesting and planting. But here's the deal. When you get to the eighth year, you're going to plant, but you still don't have anything to harvest. So here's my promise to you. On a sixth year, I'm going to give you enough to get you through year six, through year seven, and through year eight. But you're going to have to learn to care for each other, to, to share with each other. But it's important to me, God says, for the land to rest, for you to rest, for, for everybody to participate in this life and community together. You are ultimately not defined by what you do. You're ultimately defined by who you belong to and the people of whom you are a part. The year of Jubilee then says this. Seven, such a cool number. Once we've had seven of those sabbatical years, we get the number 49, which is all right. But 50, what a cool number. And so in the 50th year, grab the trumpets, proclaim a jubilee, which the trumpets are called jubils. And so we get this word, jubilee. We're going to proclaim a jubilee, but here's the part that's so lovely and powerful and beautiful about jubilee. In that 50th year, here's the deal. Everybody gets a do-over economically. Everybody has to, you have to go back to your ancestral property. You get to have a start over, a do-over. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had those etch-a-sketches and you would make, kind of make a mess of things and then you could shake it? I'm like, this is that moment to shake the etch-a-sketch, to have a whole complete do-over. Now, the reason why that's so important is because all of us can remember moments in our lives where we made decisions that set a particular trajectory for our life. Some of those decisions were good and brought a healthy, blessed trajectory. Some of them not so good and set a different trajectory. Some of you know that Deb and I, um, we're, we both have Achiever in our top five strengths, which makes us obnoxious to be friends with. Um, but we've spent a lot of our marriage then at dinner saying, so where do we see ourselves in 10 years, right? And making a list and figuring out how we're going to get to where we want to be in 10 years. I've noticed recently our conversations have changed a lot. Now when we have that conversation, we just say, let's be alive, right? Like our, our new goal is to just be breathing, right? Like we just want to be healthy and alive in 10 years. Um, we've started doing a lot of this conversation instead. Have you ever wondered where we'd be now if we had decided to do that instead of that? There, there was this one really important moment early on in our life and marriage. I had been offered, I'd been teaching at Azusa Pacific, and I'd been offered a position there, and then we had this opportunity to go to, to Oklahoma and to go to SNU, and, and it was really, I mean, they were just such both good opportunities, and I just remember we prayed about that and considered that and, and decided in the end to go to Oklahoma, and and in some ways, that was a horrible decision. In some ways, that was a great decision. The first winter we were there, it was a horrible decision. Uh, and there were some challenges, and we look back, but we oftentimes think, what would be different had we decided the other? How would we, our life be different? There may be some things that would be better. Truly, had we made that decision, Jonah and Sophie probably would not exist. Um, so it was a good decision. But... Um, but I think about every once in a while some economic decisions that I've made in my life. Uh, we complain about those a lot. Uh, we are the only people that I know of that lost money on California property. When we were first there, uh, we bought a house. And at the time, man, it seemed like a lot of money. 
And then when we made that move to Oklahoma, uh, it, it clearly at first wasn't God's will because our house didn't sell, right? And uh, that was a joke, by the way. Um, we had friends that were renting it. We, we were still losing money every month. And so we ended up selling the house for less than what we paid for it. The people who bought it from us held it for four years and sold it for three times what they bought it from us. About that same time, I had saved a little speaking money and E-Trade was new. And I thought, this is the way I'm really going to finance our family. I'm going to buy stocks. And I had read this article about this company that just started called Webvan. And it just, listen to me, this was going to revolutionize everything. You could get on your computer, order your groceries, never have to go to the grocery store again. They will deliver it right to your door. I thought this is changing everything, right? This is before smartphones were smart, by the way. Uh, so I put all $1,000 I had saved into Webvan, and it lasted exactly seven months, and then it was gone. Now, I remember at the same time reading an article about this company that I had started buying books from, but I thought, ah, who's going to get, what kind of company is going to make money like Amazon selling books to people, right? If I could go back in time, I would invest that money differently. The year of Jubilee says, when you have property, you may decide one year, this is the year barley is going to be king. We're going to borrow money for seed. We're going to plant barley, and it's going to be great. And sometimes it works, and this year it didn't. And our neighbor decided to plant wheat, and there was a 50-fold harvest of wheat. And they not only had enough money to pay back the money they borrowed for the seed, but now they had enough money to buy our farm that just went broke. And to buy our children as indentured workers for that farm. And there are decisions that we made that ended up going in this trajectory. And there are decisions our neighbor made that ended up going in this trajectory. And if we would go back in time, we would redo that. But we can't. And so the year of Jubilee says, wouldn't it be great if about every 50 years or so, we had a complete do-over. And the one who invested in Webvan could get their land back. And the one who invested in Amazon would give it back. Now, as far as we know, Israel was religious about tithing, very adamant about participating in gleaning, and even very devoted to practicing not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. In fact, in working through this, I was reading some commentaries that said, even later in Israel's history, when they were, for example, under the oversight of Persia, there were even some local laws where the Persians said, we're going to charge the Jewish people taxes, except for every seventh year, they get a tax for a year because they're not making any money. Cool idea. Um, I don't think it would work. Um, but as far as we know, they never lived in to Jubilee. And you can understand why. It's really difficult if you've made the decision that set this trajectory for you to get out of that. And it's even more difficult if you made the decisions that set this trajectory for you to level the playing field again. Just to get a little nerdy with you, if you read Leviticus 26, the next chapter... Many scholars think that Leviticus 26 actually is a later addition to the book. An addition that is probably put in 
when the people are in exile in Babylon as a way of saying, how did we get here? And one of the answers is, because you didn't do this. And in fact, Leviticus 26 is God saying to them, you refused to give the land a rest, so I sent you an exile, and now the land is getting their years of rest that you refused to give it, give to them. It's fascinating. But this year of Jubilee gets caught then in the people's imaginations because they realize we may not have lived into that, but there's something that is so central to the imagination of God that is at work in this law. So that moving forward, when the people got out of exile in Babylon, they find themselves in Jerusalem and everything is rubble. And they're very discouraged and they're not sure how to move forward. But the prophet stands up in Isaiah 61 and says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. To proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to blind. To let the oppressed go free. And here's the key line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, what the prophet is saying to them is, we never enacted this, but it didn't change the heart of God to do it. And what God has done in bringing us out of Babylon is he has announced what we were unwilling to announce in the lives of others. God has announced in our lives a do-over. And we get to begin again. Now that's so cool, but if you move even Further into the scripture, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes, is starting his ministry, goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, they're so excited, he takes the scroll, opens it to Isaiah 61 and reads this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. Release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he has the audacity to say to that group of people, today this word is fulfilled in your hearing. He proclaims a do-over. Shake the etch a sketch. Everybody gets to start again. It's why in Luke it's so central that we have parables like the best known one about a man who has two sons and the youngest son takes his inheritance, squanders it, wastes it, makes a decision that sets the trajectory of his life squarely down to the pig pen. But then he comes back to the father, crawls back to the father, and the father says, what are you doing here? You've wasted your life. You're set in that trajectory. Go away from me. No, you know how the story goes. It's the year of the Lord's favor. It's a do-over. It's a welcome home. It's a begin again. It's a restoration to a whole new healthy trajectory that moves away from all of that brokenness. This morning... This text reminds us not just of who God is, but who God hopes we might be. Some of us come to this place this morning um, with unbelievable spiritual indebtedness. Decisions that we have made or perhaps even others have made upon us that has set a trajectory that has largely been a trajectory of brokenness and bondage. The good news this morning 
is for those of us who have sinned both against God and against others. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I would make just two quick caveats on that. As we were working through Leviticus, I was reminded again and again in these sacrificial moments that the sacrifices really aren't an attempt to try to buy God's wrath or buy God's anger. God is full of steadfast love and mercy. God does not need those sacrifices. I was reminded again and again of how those sacrifices are a reminder to us that that grace is not cheap. And so Jubilee can't be proclaimed on our life week after week, day after day, but we just keep living with the same trajectory and in the same patterns of decisions that continue to bring destruction. The other caveat I would make about that is in so many of these offerings, they're offerings of restitution. In fact, if, if it's me that discovers I've sinned against Josh and um, God wants to make that right, but I don't get to just receive that jubilee and let that brokenness go with Josh. In fact, there's offerings of restitution. That means I not only have to make things up with Josh, I have to add 20% <laughs> in the offerings. There's a deep desire that Jubilee not just be a release from those debts, but an opportunity for us to work as best we can at bringing reconciliation and wholeness to the community that we are a part of. But the other side of Jubilee is not just when we are stuck in patterns and sin and structures and brokenness we can't get out of. Jubilee is also for those of us who are rich Maybe not in property and wealth, but, but we're rich in the debts of others. Our, our pockets are full of the debts others have racked up against us. And, and the sad thing is, for many of us, the trajectory of our life is set by that because we now know ourselves primarily by the people that we're still angry with especially in our culture today, we're more defined by the people we dislike and even hate than we are by the things that we love. Jubilee is not just an invitation for the younger brother to go come home. It's an invitation for the older brother to let it go. I would make two caveats here. In releasing those hurts and those angers, that is, please hear this. This is not a call for some of you who are part of abusive and broken relationships just to keep going back into those relationships. The call to forgive others is is never a call for us to keep putting ourselves in positions that not only do damage to us, but never actually bring wholeness to the one who not only hurts us, but probably hurts others too. And secondly, it's been my own experience, and, and even some of this is deeply personal for me. 
for I think part of my achieving nature at times has been my attempt to prove to those who've hurt me that I will show them. Which may have set me on a trajectory of a certain kind of success, but also has set me on a trajectory of a certain kind of brokenness too. And I don't know for some of you who have pockets full of debts of others, if, we're, if we can rehabit our lives only in a single instance. Perhaps proclaiming Jubilee is moving to that moment where we begin the process of taking them out one by one, sometimes with godly counsel, to begin to release those so that a new trajectory can begin for us. Today is kind of a special day. Um, today, we had a little celebration this morning. Today is Debbie's 34th Christian birthday. Pretty cool. Yeah. Some of you uh, Seattle Aurora transplants were, were there back in the day when she got off the freeway on the wrong exit and ended up deciding to come to church. And on the first Sunday she was there, the second Sunday of November 1988, gave her life to the Lord, having really little idea what she was getting herself into. But God began to transform her life. We met a few months later and got married about a year and a half later in February of 1990. And, and I have to say, it's one thing to become a Christian. It's another thing to become a Christian and marry into a tribe of Levites. Um, We'd been married about a year when we moved to Pasadena for me to finish seminary and graduate school. And, and part of what that meant is then moving from people who kind of knew her story into people who started to assume her story. And we would be with really religious types all the time. And every once in a while she would wonder, if these people kind of knew my history or knew my background, they, they're making some assumptions about who I am. Would they still like me or love me the way that they do? We have some friends, uh, he was a professional basketball player years ago and started a ministry for professional athletes and their spouses, and they've been important mentors in Debbie's life, and so they invited her to come to a retreat for the wives of professional athletes. That just makes sense. Um, <laughs> actually, they were sitting around in a circle kind of sharing why they were there and what their husbands do, and Debbie said, well, uh, my husband went to the ER last week because he split his tongue in, a ha in half playing intramural seminary basketball. So we're the same, uh, right? Like, I, I remember when she got invited, we kind of assumed, it was one of those things where we kind of assumed that our friends were probably going to cover that because we were really graduate school poor in those days. And this was a very fancy place that we could not have afforded to go to in those days on our own. And and so she kind of went hoping that was the case, but we thought it was important enough for her to go that even if it didn't work out that way, it would be fine. And, and there were a couple of moments where meals came or things came, and so she, you know, charged that to her room like everybody else around the table was doing. And, and it got to the, to the moment where she was leaving, and so she was checking out with a little bit of fear and trepidation. She gave them their, her name, and they looked at her and said, Mrs. Daniels, you're fine, like your bill's paid. And she said, no, I, I actually, I charged some things to the room. I probably, I, I don't want others to have to pay for that. I, I need to pay for that. And said, no, 
ma'am, your bill is paid. This is the moment where I would have walked away. But she said, yeah, uh, check just one more time. Like, are you sure? Like, I, are you, I, I just don't, I don't want to leave without any debts paid. If I tell the story correctly, he, a little irritated, said, ma'am, your bill is paid in full and slid the bill across the desk with big red letters that said paid in full. As Debbie has told that story across the years, it was one of those moments where God reminded her that she no longer has to carry those things. That we no longer have to carry those things because God announces a grace in our lives that casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so this morning, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. Amen. Release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim it is the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. And I know it's already 12 o'clock. But we gave you an extra hour of sleep last week. <laughs> and I, I feel like I would cheat both the scripture and the spirit this morning if I just didn't give a chance for maybe somebody to respond. Maybe you turned on the wrong street this week. And you're sitting somewhere wondering, this sounds so true and I desperately need it. We're convinced that's the voice of the Spirit Amen. saying to you, you do not have to continue to live in that trajectory. You can have a do-over begin again. God, by his grace, can help you to make relationships whole and right and start a trajectory of health that moves you to be what God wants you to be. Or you may be here, and you've been here a long time, but man, you walk around with IOUs spilling out of your pockets they make you so bitter and angry and depressed and sad. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. Amen. And so this morning as we sing an old hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound with a wonderful tag to it that says, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Amen. Maybe the way to receive that this morning is to respond to it. And so these altars are open for you. The first Sunday Deb was in church, that scared her a little bit. She didn't know what these were. Thankfully, my dad said, these, aren't, these are not places where chickens come to die in worship. Um, This is a holy space set apart for when we sense God has moved to us, but we know we desperately need to move towards God. And maybe that's you this morning.
Would you sing with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to be. Grace my fears Oh God, who will not let us go. Oh God, who refuses to allow broken, painful, hurtful decisions of the past to have the final word. You who are able to raise Christ from the dead, you are able to bring our lives back from bondage and brokenness and hurt. I pray for some who are here today who need desperately a do-over. It doesn't mean that we completely get to start from scratch. There may be reconciliation to take place and new habits to form. But our hope today is that sin and darkness and evil and death do not get the last word, but grace and light and grace and life have the final word for us. So make it so for us today. Make us people freed to live our best life with you because of your amazing grace. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing that last verse together. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, sing.
you're a guest with us again this morning, thanks uh, for being with us. If you're a regular, you know where we're going to go with this. When God pronounces freedom in our life, not just from our brokenness, but now our freedom to be what God has called us to be. Um, There's something so beautiful about that. Nazarene types, we, we call that the sanctified life. A life that's free, but a life that fully belongs to God. That's why this benediction's for us this morning. May the God who just can't stand not having peace, <laughs> may he sanctify us through and through. And may our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful and he will not stop until he finishes this work in us. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Go in his peace.